Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandike, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or about about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. So before the Advent season, uh, we were in a series on the book of Acts. Uh, called Blueprint. And we're returning to that series today and for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Acts is, just to catch some of you up, or if this is your first time, just to give you a little indication of where we are, Acts is one of the largest books in the Bible, certainly one of the largest books in the New Testament. And it's the second installment of a two-volume work, uh, which includes um, both Acts and the Gospel according to Luke. And together, both books span the early life and teachings, uh, death and resurrection of Jesus, and also the rise and expansion of this early movement, uh, which today we called Christianity, uh, this early movement of Jesus' followers. So Acts is all about early Christianity, what the early followers of Jesus were like, what was Christianity's aims and goals in the first century, and what in the first century made it Uh, believable and attractive. So today what I'd like to do is look at this story in Acts chapter 8 under three headings. First, I think this story will show us uh, how insiders go out. Second, we'll see how outsiders come in. And then third, we'll learn the key to both. So first, how insiders go out. Second, how outsiders come in. And then third, we'll, we'll see the key to both. So first, how do insiders go out? Um, It wasn't included in in the reading today, but in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, 
uh, Luke documents a large-scale persecution that, that broke out in the city of Jerusalem, the ancient city of Jerusalem, after the death of Christianity's first martyr, a man by the name of Stephen. And this persecution resulted in a vast uh, um, uh, dispersion, a, a vast scattering of the majority of the Christians who were living in Jerusalem at that time. They were, their lives were interrupted. They were separated from their homes and their normal, uh, their normal daily routines. And Luke says that those who were scattered uh, in, 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 in Acts chapter 8 went about preaching the word. And so Philip... Philip in, in Acts 8 is one of the examples of these early Christians, one of these early Jesus followers. So who is Philip? Uh, we, we first learn about Philip in Acts chapter 6. He's one of seven Hellenist Jews who are selected to be uh, what is essentially the church's first deacons. That means that Philip is prominent. He's a leader He's not only full of the Holy Spirit, uh, but he's a guy with incredibly, uh, incredible skills, incredible gifts for ministry. From Acts 6, we learn that Philip and his team of deacons were, at, were tasked with implementing a, a just and equitable system of food distribution to the widows in, in, in the city. And from Acts 8, earlier in, in the chapter we read from this morning... We see that Philip is a gifted orator. He's a gifted communicator. He has a way of interacting with people that is compelling. Um, so what's interesting in Acts 8 and what brings us up to the story where we are today is Philip, along with a number of other Christians, had gone into villages in Samaria, uh, places where if you were culturally and ethnically Jewish, you would avoid these places. And they had gone into places that were culturally and religiously off-limits to Jews, and they had planted churches there. They had begun establishing relationships and communities within these Samaritan villages. And, the, and their work was so successful, it was so fruitful, uh, that two of the apostles, two of the leading uh, figures of the church in Jerusalem came to uh, investigate the work and to bless the work. Uh, and to say that this was a good thing that was happening. So why am I telling you all this? Because that's right where uh, today's story picks up. Right when Philip and these early Christians had been experiencing fruitful ministry, right when churches were getting planted, right when there would be need, uh, the desperate need in some cases, for gifted leadership to stay put, uh, to bunker down, God tells Philip to go out. You see that. Philip is doing amazing work. People are coming to Jesus. Their lives are being transformed. He's probably establishing a baller worship team. He's probably setting up a children's ministry that's absolutely mind-blowing. He's probably got a compassion team that is reaching the community and reaching the lost of these Samaritan villages. And it's right at that point that God says, okay, it's time to go to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, you know what's important. You know what's visionary. You know what's absolutely strategic about this road between Jerusalem and Gaza? Absolutely nothing. 
This is, this is a desert. It's, a, it's an arid, dry, uninhabited no man's land. This road between Jerusalem and Gaza. There's nothing there. And God tells Philip to leave his ministry, leave, leave his fruitfulness, leave his success, leave his programs, and go to this desert place. Go to this road between Jerusalem and Gaza. You know what this text is telling me today, friends? It's saying that God loves our programs. He loves ministry teams. He loves community groups. He loves compassion ministry. But most of all, he loves people. God loves people. Look, I know I'm I'm living in the same world that we're all inhabiting. I know we're all busy. Everyone I talk to now is busy. We're all trying to be as efficient as possible. I have uh, software programs on my computer just to make me as productive as I can possibly be. Uh, If you are in leadership at Trinity, you know that for the past several months I've been uh, trying to roll out this uh, computer church management software called Planning Center uh, so that we can be more efficient. I love efficiency. But you know what this text pushes me towards? It pushes me towards the reality that maybe God is primarily interested in people. I'm forced to ask, I wonder if God is asking us, I wonder if he's asking me to maybe just go and hang out in the desert road for a minute. Maybe that means for some of you wasting some time in your front yard this week, getting to know your neighbors. Maybe it means slowing down and seeing the people in your daily routines, the people at your local coffee haunts, the Amazon Prime delivery guy, the single neighbor who you know spent the holidays alone. God loves them. God calls Philip all the way out into the middle of nowhere for one person. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that incredible? Don't you love this? Aren't you compelled by this God? Isn't this God beautiful? See, Philip is the ultimate insider. He's a Jew. He's an established leader. He's a pace setter in the early church. But God sends him out. You know, and as I sat meditating on this text over the last couple of days, it dawned on me that Philip, in his work and his ministry, is very much like Jesus. A successful leader enjoying the relative security of his work and ministry. But God calls him to do the unexpected. To go down to a desert place. Step out of your comfort, out of your security, and obey me, Philip. You know who did that first? Who did that ultimately? Jesus. He left the comfort of his home, the convenience of his throne, the security of his father's house to enter into a desert place, to enter into our world. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. He's the first and ultimate missionary. Listen to Jesus. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Friends, insiders, 
insiders in Christianity, insiders in the church go out because God goes out. Because God is the ultimate insider who went out to rescue and redeem us. If Philip is the ultimate insider, if he's the insider in this passage, then this black African head of state is the ultimate outsider. So let's consider for a moment uh, how insiders, how outsiders come in. Let's consider this Ethiopian for a minute. First, uh, he's from what our Bibles call Ethiopia. It says he's from Ethiopia. Now, when we think, when I think of Ethiopia, uh, I think of Ethiopia as a nation state on the eastern horn of Africa. But the Greek term, the, the term in the New Testament, really applied to all of Africa, anything that was really south of Egypt. In the Old Testament, this region is known as Cush. Now, for Greek speakers in the first century, Ethiopia would have, uh, it, you would have considered Ethiopia at the very, uh, the, the limits of the empire, beyond the limits of the empire. It was, it was to the very ends of the world, uh, this area called Ethiopia. So this man is, is traveling from some distance. Second, this man is described as a court official of Kandake, who was the queen of the Ethiopians. And he, it says he was in charge of all of her treasure. Now, what this is basically saying, I know it's sort of if I put most of you on the spot and asked you who is the, the, uh, the secretary of the treasury, probably none of you would know the answer to that question. You might. Um, but this, this is a position. This man held a position that was basically he was like the CFO of the entire country. Um, I've been reading for the last year, because it's so lengthy, the biography of Alexander Hamilton. And if you know anything about Alexander Hamilton's life, um, he was essentially almost like a prime minister. He had so much power to control the systems and the structures uh, of the government in establishing um, the, the early American republic. This man is sort of like Alexander Hamilton. He, he, was, he had power over vast stretches of of this, this place called Ethiopia. He was a man who had reached the top, uh, the pinnacle of his career. Third, and the thing that's most highlighted by this text, in fact, it's indicated five separate times in our passage, uh, this man is said to be a eunuch. He's been castrated. And this was relati- a relatively common practice if you were not of royal blood but on the other hand, being trained and being coached towards uh, positioning yourself for administrative leadership in the palace, in a country, in a kingdom. See, because you would be interacting with the royal family frequently, uh, the price for that kind of access, that kind of power, was castration. Now, I read um, so much about eunuchs this week. And I'm going to spare you some of the details, some of the incredible details uh, that I came across. Uh, But I'm convinced there is a reason Luke is highlighting this black African status as a eunuch. See, most of humanity uh, was said to despise eunuchs from all of the literature that we can gather from the ancient world. Most of humanity was said to despise eunuchs. Castration in the ancient world was thought to remove a man's status as a male. Eunuchs weren't considered either men or boys. 
They tended to have effeminate characteristics and so generally speaking were looked down upon by other adult men. Now, in a Gentile culture, there were occasions here and there where a eunuch might be given a certain degree of honor uh, because of the high rank uh, and position that they held. It was, it was a testimony to the fact that you were, you, were, uh, you were able to go to these lengths to achieve the position that you, you wanted. You were willing to sacrifice everything to get to the top. But in Jewish culture... The place that Philip comes from, being a eunuch made you a permanent outsider. In fact, Deuteronomy 23, which was basically the the constitution of the Israelite community, in Deuteronomy 23, it said that no eunuch could enter the assembly of the Lord. See, eunuchs were outsiders in Jewish culture by at least two standards. First, They could never receive the ultimate mark of inclusion into the Jewish community, that is circumcision, which means they could never become a true convert to uh, the the practice and religion of Judaism. Second, in a culture that elevated the importance of the family and descendants and passing on your family line and tree, a eunuch was left without any way to preserve his name, his family tree, or his legacy. Now, that's all fascinating, but the biggest question in this text is, why Isaiah? Why is this black African eunuch reading the scroll of Isaiah? Why is this man, who is both racially other and sexually altered, reading this ancient prophecy from Isaiah? First, notice also that he's returning home from Jerusalem. I think that's revealing something amazing to us. If you'll stick with me just a moment. Why would a black African leave his culture, his kingdom, his religion for a journey that would take him months, risking both safety and security to his own life, as well as his high-ranking position? This is a journey that would take months to achieve, if not a whole year. Why would he risk that unless there was something that all his achievement, all his high rank, all his position hadn't brought him? He had no family, and all his status, all his position, all his achievement had left him seeking something else. So he finds the God of the Bible and thinks maybe in Jerusalem... Maybe in the temple, maybe in this sacrificial system that I've heard about, maybe that's where I can receive the acceptance, the security, the significance that I'm looking for. But the sad irony is, is that when he would have arrived at the temple, because of his status as a eunuch, he would have been denied access. They wouldn't have let him in. He would have been excluded. He would have been left on the outside. So this eunuch is on his way home, and he's intently reading the prophecy of Isaiah. We even know the chapter. We even know the, 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 the place that he's reading on the scroll. He's reading Isaiah 53. Why? I think it's because he's heard about Isaiah 56. 
You see Isaiah 56, which is not too far from Isaiah 53, reads like this. Let no foreigner say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs that hold fast to my covenant. I will give my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You see what he sees? He sees a position that is far greater than what he's been able to achieve. He sees a salvation that is far better than family, a name and an identity that cannot be cut off. Now, the section of the Isaiah scroll that the eunuch is reading, it really hinges on this mysterious figure that's found in the latter parts of the book of Isaiah, in which this mysterious figure called the servant uh, comes into play. And in this particular passage, he's reading about the servant who is suffering. Why would the eunuch be reading this passage? Why would he be reading this passage? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. The next verse is somewhat tricky if, you ha- if you're following along in the worship folder. Um, and our, that translation sort of obscures it. Our, our translation reads this. Who can describe his generation? But as I was studying this text and, and, and looking at what the scholars said, perhaps the better rendering is from another translation that says this. No one cared that he died without descendants. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. No one cared that he died without descendants. Fascinating. The next verse says this, he was cut off from the land of the living. You see what the eunuch is seeing? He's seeing someone who voluntarily became a sacrificial lamb, a servant who voluntarily became equivalent to a eunuch, someone who had died without any descendants, someone who had no lineage, someone whose life was cut off. And it's at this precise point where Philip engages him. Do you understand what you're reading? And this is exactly what the eunuch cannot figure out. Who is this? Who is this servant who would voluntarily sacrifice himself? Who would voluntarily become like me, a eunuch? And that, friends, is the answer to our third heading. It's the key. It's the key to both going out and the key to coming in. You see what Philip does here? Beginning with this scripture, Acts 8 says, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's the key. Jesus. Jesus is the key to it all. The Jesus who traded heaven for a manger, who exchanged a throne for a cross. He became a lamb who was the ultimate substitute. Even though he knew no sin, he became sin. Even though he was the source of all life, he became a eunuch like a dry tree. See, the Old Testament law, the law in the Old Testament excluded eunuchs from God's presence, and it was getting at a much deeper, much uh, a greater spiritual reality. 
See, we all, like eunuchs, deserve to be cut off from God's presence. Nobody loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody loves their neighbor as themselves. We all deserve to be outsiders. We all deserve to be excluded. And yet Jesus, the ultimate insider, the one who was included in the life and joy of the Trinity, even though he deserved to be forever included, was excluded. He was cut off. He was forsaken so that you and I could be brought in. That's the gospel. That's the heart of Christianity. It's not about you being a nice person. It's not about you being a put-together person. It's about Jesus being separated forever from his Father in eternity cast into darkness, forsaken, so that you could be included. So that you could have an identity and a family tree that's not broken, that's not dependent on you achieving, but on you receiving from Jesus. Two concluding thoughts. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, how are we ever ever going to go out? How are we ever going to get public with our faith? Especially today in a pluralistic culture, we don't want to risk being called insensitive or at its worst being called intolerant or arrogant. How in the world do we move towards people who don't believe and don't behave like us? First, I think it's important to admit that None of us believes and behaves exactly like us. We don't believe and behave like we think we do. More importantly, we don't believe and behave like Jesus does. Christianity isn't for the put together. It's for the broken. It's for people in all of their inferiority complexes, all of their neuroses, all of their addictions, all of their dysfunction, all of their sin. If you're here today and you're believing the truth of Christianity, it's not because you're better. It's not because you're more moral. It's not because you're more educated. It's not because you're more rational. It's because God has sought you out and found you. If that's true of you, if you're enthralled by that reality, then how can you not share what is at the center of who you are, the center of your identity? How can you not bring others into the party? How can you not include others into the joy of salvation, the joy of being known and rescued and loved by Jesus? Second, if you're an insider, you need to know how great the sacrifice is. God loved the world so much. He loved you. He loved me. He loved our neighbors so much that he gave his one and only son. So let me ask you, who are the Ethiopian eunuchs in your life right now? That may be a kind of silly question until you step back and say, who are the people that I'm looking down on, the people I'm ignoring, the people I'm snubbing, because they're not like me, because they don't vote the same way that I vote, because they don't behave the same way that I behave, because their lifestyle is so radically different from mine. Friends, do you know how much you're loved? 
do you know how much God loves them? If you aren't a follower of Jesus here today, first, thank you for coming. Even if you were maybe, I know around the holidays, forcibly dragged by family members or awkwardly invited by a friend. We are glad you're here. I'm glad you're here this morning. You know, there's a misconception, and I hear it quite frequently, that Christianity is for, or the church is for good people. It's for nice people. It's for moral people. It's for respectable people. And friends, if you're here today and you believe that, nothing could be further from the truth. You may be sitting here today and you're saying, there's no way this is for me. I'm disabled and I've never been accepted, not even at church. Friend, the gospel is for you. I'm damaged goods. I've been abused and used by family members, by partners, by strangers. Friend, the gospel is for you. I'm divorced. I'm anxious. I'm addicted. Friend, the gospel is for you. I've got secrets, and if anyone found them out, I'd be disowned, excluded, and made an outsider. Friend, there's nothing that Jesus doesn't already know about you, and he loves you exactly where you are. He wants you exactly as you are right now today. He knows you to your depths, and he loves you to the skies. Is there anything that prevents you from coming to this Jesus? Anything that prevents you from joining your story to Jesus' story? Anything that prevents you from baptism? Anything that prevents you from being forever loved by this God? Friend, no, there never was and there never will be. I love the words of the old hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this story. Thank you that your spirit desires a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Thank you that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. We pray that we would be witnesses to the depth of his love and the magnitude of his sacrifice for a lost humanity. We pray that you would dispel our doubts of self-worth and help us feel that all the worth, all the belonging, all the acceptance we long for and are seeking is found in Jesus alone. In his name we pray, amen.